You know it's a sin to be a ghoul and feed on everyone's pain. This is the Mad Men pregame show from WNYC. I'm Ellen Horn. Thanks for joining us for this Sonic tailgate party. As we amp ourselves up for all the weekend action, we're talking to other superfans, historians, social critics, industry experts, and hashing out some of the big themes that Mad Men has tackled over the years, sometimes brilliantly, sometimes in ways that make us want to scream. Today, we'll be focusing on the Mad Women, from the youngest one to the ladies who are navigating the working world. But first, here's where we're at. We start with Don's 3 a.m. booty call. He answers the door in a suit. Do you sleep like that? I'm vain. It's that waitress, Diana. How many girls have you had in this elevator? Time out. Why are we introducing a new character? We've only got five more episodes left of this series. Give me some Joan or, or Trudy. What's up with her? Instead, we get naked. I wasn't going to say a word. I wasn't going to give you the satisfaction of knowing that you ruined my life. She's back in town to get a divorce. On the upside, she's now a million dollars richer. But she's still unemployed. In desperation, she reaches out to Harry Crane, who basically uses it as an opportunity to hit on her. Oh, Harry, I'm not interested. Megan, you're a big girl. Maybe you're in this situation because of how you're reacting to this. Then again, it's not much better for the men. They may be divorced, they may be millionaires, but they're now errand boys for McCann. I think you're going to begin your life over and do it right. But what if you never get past the beginning again? So bleak. It just feels like it's too late for all these characters. They've already screwed up their lives beyond redemption. So I got to thinking about one character we haven't seen in what feels like forever. When I think about forever, I get upset. Like the Land of Legs Butter has that Indian girl sitting holding a box. And it has a picture of her on it holding a box. It's a picture of her on it holding a box. Have you ever noticed that? Sally Draper. She's come a long way. Are you and Daddy doing it? What? I know what it is. I know that the man peace inside the woman. Sally may have started out as a domestic drama punchline, but she's become a central character. I'm sure your father's giving you a beer. My father's never given me anything. What sort of life is Sally headed for? I know someone who might have some insight. You may know her as the host of On the Media and the great recap podcast on House of Cards. But Brooke Gladstone would argue she's also someone else. I am Sally in many senses in that we were both born in the same year and we grew up in the suburbs. Now, Sally grew up in a much wealthier environment than I did. We were sort of lower middle class except for one very brief, rich period in the late 60s. But we both had the same cultural signposts. And were you aware as a child or as a teen that the world was changing around you? I mean, one of the the thesis of the show really seems to be that we're moving from the world of the 50s into the world of the 70s through the eyes of all of the characters. But I think as we get towards the end of the series, Sally has become sort of the 
person that we move into the future with. Well, you see, that's the weird thing is because Sally doesn't really know that they're moving from the era of the 50s because she's born in 1955. She's five years old it would in be 1960. Impossible. Right. It would be impossible to have any sense of perspective about what the, what's going on in the world. Right. And as the world changes, and it does, things radically changed and... So was she changing just by dint of growing up. So what she cared about, what she saw on TV was in some ways a cultural revolution. But she just saw it as a human revolution that every one of us goes through when we go through our teens. Did did you watch a lot of TV as a family? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Star Trek was in 1966 when I was 11. Uh you know, then in 1968, you had Mary Tyler Moore. That was the beginning of Monday Night Football, which I did not watch. <laughs> you know, in 1970, the Beatles broke up. You know, yeah, Apollo yeah. 13 had to call Houston because they had a problem. Jimi Hendrix died. Janis Joplin died. You had Kent State, you know, four students slain by the National Guard protesting our invasion into Cambodia. There was just a sense that everything was going wrong, you know. When did you become aware of the Vietnam War in oh, your childhood? Oh, uh, I would say 1968. I was cutting school. I was 13, and I was, you know, wearing armbands, and I was protesting and all of that. And wow, yeah. my parents say that I was completely insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You can't teach a 13-year-old anything. <laughs> And 15, Sally's 15, so she's going to start having some doubts now. <laughs> I think she's been having doubts for a while. Yeah. yeah. She she doesn't show them in front of her parents too often. One of the things that we've been watching through the eyes of Sally is the way that these events as the world is mo as changing impact her parents mm -hmm. and her becoming aware of her parents' relationship. Do you remember a time where you started to become aware of your parents as separate entities and ones that had a relationship with each other? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, during our brief rich period, uh, which <laughs> reminded me more of Sally's life, that was sort of an ice stormy period where uh, my parents would go to these parties and come back kind of smashed. And, <laughs> and uh, in the meantime, I would be out on the balcony smoking what I thought was pot. It was probably oregano, but I paid pot prices for it. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, we were living very, very separate lives. And it was, it was like we were looking through plate glass at each other. Oh, that's a great way to describe it. That's really interesting. Um, how do you see where we're headed and where Sally is headed? Sally is going to get really angry, my guess is. You know, it's uh, Sally and people maybe five years younger than she is. They will have had enough of what they've seen, and they won't be used to putting up with it like their parents did. And, uh, you know, this is before we get to lipstick feminism and, and body-comfortable feminism and, and right, all the right. kinds of feminism that is is positive. You know, this is a protest kind of feminism. This is a, this is a feminism that is, uh, is intolerant of what it seems as... Sheer discrimination, the kind of thing that we've seen played out in uh, season after season on Mad Men. So I think that uh, 
you know, if this were to go on for a bunch more seasons, which of course it isn't, uh, you would see Sally becoming mightily pissed off with the world that she's supposed to work in, and she will see a very strong cautionary tale in her own mother. And speaking of those grown-up ladies, Brooke has a pet peeve about people who complain about how their work lives are portrayed on the show. Whenever I hear someone saying, you know, Joan would never sit there while that guy was making those, you know, disgusting sexual jokes in in the first episode at her expense, she wouldn't sit there. She's an executive in the company. They do not understand how actually realistic this silent sucking up in the face of this obnoxious behavior was. We'll take a look at the reality of the workplace for these mad women next. Joan, you've never experienced that before. Have you, Peggy? I don't know. You can't have it both ways. You can't dress the way you do. And How do I dress? You're listening to the Mad Men pregame show from WNYC. I'm Ellen Horn. Look, they didn't take me seriously either. So what you're saying is, I don't dress the way you do because I don't look like you. And that's very, very true. I can't help but cringe every time I see the women turn on each other in this show. They have a common goal. I want to burn this place down. Uh, Okay, maybe not that, but they're pretty damn frustrated. They've gotten fed up. I mean, it's been fascinating to observe, and I, it's brought me some sort of personal satisfaction, I think, in watching as they, they essentially got pissed. This is Jess Bennett. I'm a writer and journalist uh, focused on women's issues, um, and I was of the generation that thought that everything was equal and we didn't need feminism, and then quickly discovered once we were actually working that things weren't as equal as we had thought. I got Jess to come into the WNYC studios and listen to some clips. Cool. So you have your coffee. I have my coffee. Okay, great. I'm going to take my earrings off because I just noticed they're making noise. See the things women have to go through. Um, Okay. Season four, episode seven. Peggy is sick of feeding great ideas to Dawn. That's the way it works. There are no credits on commercials. You got the Clio. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's what the money is for. You're young. You will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Everything to you is an opportunity. But Don isn't just saying that because Peggy is young. Women, even today in the workplace, don't often get credit for their work. You know, all of the data and the studies go to show that... that that's what the money's for. It's not as much money if, you, as, if you'd been a man. Right, but... exactly. So it's an, <laughs> A, not as much money, and you're not getting the credit for it. Um, and also that he just sounds like a complete dick in that scene. Um, but, yeah, a male boss frequently takes credit for a female underling's work or a female partner's work, and that happens even today. And back then... The fact that she was actually speaking up about it and saying that it bothered her was probably a really big thing and pretty brave because I know a lot of women today who still don't do that. Right. Um, right. The thing that jumps out of that clip to me is the, is the line, um, everything to you is an opportunity. 
I mean, that's the thing. If this she, is the workplace. If she were a man, would he be saying that same thing? It's as if women are supposed to be sort of demure and, you know, doing the background work and helping the the man in charge look good for his opportunistic purposes, but not for hers. And if she does it for hers, she's seen as, you know, too assertive or too ambitious and thus not feminine, maybe. That's something we've seen Joan and Peggy hash out again and again, often, it seems, in the elevator. This next clip is from Season 4, Episode 8. Peggy discovers an obscene cartoon of Joan and cans the artist. I don't know if you heard, but I fired Joey. I did. Good for you. Excuse me? Now everybody in the office will know that you solved my problem and that you must be really important, I guess. What's wrong with you? I defended you. You defended yourself. Fine. The cartoon was disgusting. I'd already handled it. And if I wanted to go further, one dinner with Mr. Kreutzer from Sugarberry Ham and Joy would have been off it and out of my hair. So it's the same result. You want to be a big shot. Well, no matter how powerful we get around here, they can still just draw a cartoon. So all you've done is prove to them that I'm a meaningless secretary and you're another humorless bitch. Have a nice weekend. Good night, Peggy. Oh, the elevator scenes. Like, oh my God, the things that happened. I actually did just get chills. Right? (laughs) That exact thing, minus maybe the word secretary, because we no longer call women secretaries, happens today in the workplace so frequently. And there really are two extremes that women have to balance or somehow navigate their way to find the middle, which is being the person who is likable and sweet and sort of has that, you know, lead with a velvet hammer the way that Joan does, but isn't necessarily respected around the office. And then the kind of hard line, hard charging, authoritative bitch. When when we talk about women's roles, women in the workplace, women's relationship with other women, is this show about then or is the show about now? I think it's about both. And in a way, the fact that they're able to carry it out in this time period where you can show these really egregious, disgusting examples allows them to get at the issues in a way that a a piece about the current day wouldn't allow you to. I was doing a story and having a conversation with Gail Collins, the, the New York Times columnist, about sexism then versus now. And she said to me, this was obviously worse in my era. Sexism was much worse. But in a way you guys have it harder because when somebody grabbed your ass back then, when somebody said that women were not allowed to be journalists, you knew that was sexist. And today, these things are so much more subtle. It's just these kind of tiny behaviors that we notice or a feeling that you get that things aren't quite equal, but you can't really call it out. And so I think that what the show is able to do is talk about these issues in a way that is so extreme and so overt, because that's how it was happening back then, that it can remind us of what work there still is to be done today. Jess Bennett writes about women in the workplace for Time.com. And that's all the work we're doing today on the Mad Men pregame show. Our creatives are James Ramsey, Dan O'Donnell, Jenny Lawton, Paula Schumann, Caitlin Thompson, and Irene Trudell. Special thanks this week to Mimi Rogers. I'm Ellen Horn, watching on Sunday night, martini in hand. And back next week, I can feel the tension of your need for my approval.
Where were you? I was worried. I was sleepy. 